Well, good morning again. Uh, special thanks to those of you who are joining us uh, by uh, live stream. Uh, greetings to you as well. Uh, greetings to you little theologians while I'm preaching. If you could work on a picture for me, uh, would you draw for me a picture of a throne? A throne and make it uh, big and impressive. Jesus is tried in this passage. It's a trial scene. And what they really want is they want to sit on the throne that belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. So as I preach, draw a picture of a throne. Our passage this morning is Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, picking up where, of course, we left off last week. Uh, Verse 53 is where we'll start, and we'll go to the end of Mark chapter 14. Before we read this passage together, join me in prayer. Holy Father, we proclaim to you that we love your word, yet over the course of this week we've maybe not shown our love for your word, we've not spent much time uh, in it. Uh, Father, would you encourage us with your word uh, this morning that you would operate by your Holy Spirit inside of us and give us understanding of your word, but that you would also send us from this place deeply encouraged by what you teach us, encouraged to read your word more this week than last. I thank you for your ministry to us and your word through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think I said that right. Uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning at uh, verse uh, 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway 
and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and a swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of our Lord. It's pretty evident, isn't it, that the very beginning of this passage opens with a, a courtroom scene. It opens with a trial. But what I want to challenge us uh, to see in this passage this morning is that there's not simply one trial that's happening. I mean, to be sure, there's a, there's a trial that opens this long passage. But it's not just one trial or even two trials. We actually have here three trials. And uh, with these trials, we are learning something about Jesus The first trial has to do with what Jesus uh, performs for our salvation. Uh, The first uh, trial is the trial about the salvation that Jesus brings. But there's another trial. I'm not calling it the first trial. I'm calling it the final trial, and it's in the middle of the passage. And this final trial is not so much about the salvation of Jesus, but it's rather about the judgment that Jesus brings the final trial that brings judgment. And then uh, finally, at the very end, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? The, uh, the trial that Peter experiences with a young girl and with the bystanders. This is the familiar trial. This is a trial that we as Christians uh, understand all too well. And this is a trial not about the salvation of Jesus or the judgment of Jesus. This is a trial about the sanctification that Jesus brings his children. Three trials here. That's, uh, you see, how the sermon is ordered. The first trial, the final trial, and the familiar trial. And as I've said, the first trial is about salvation. You see it right there, an opening of uh, verse 43. Uh, There's a trial here. I said 43, I meant 53. But there's something about this trial that may, uh, may not quite grip you. You might, might not see this. But this trial from 53 to 61 is a trial with proceedings that grossly violate Jewish jurisprudence. I'm quoting uh, a uh, writer of a commentary, but all over the proceedings of this trial, there are, there are all kinds of gross violations about how a trial ought to take place. And in many ways, the the second trial may not feel much like a trial, and that last trial with Peter may not feel much like a trial. But this one that actually is a trial, well, it's grossly negligent of what a trial ought to be. The same commentator goes on to say that nearly every detail of Jesus' trial violates uh, the rules of the Mishnah. That's the uh, oral law of the Jews at the time of Jesus. And I just want to uh, show this to you. I want to show eight things in this trial real quickly uh, that show that this trial is a gross injustice. Uh, first of all, the trial's in the wrong location. The wrong location. 
The Sanhedrin would normally meet north of the temple where they actually had a a courtroom specifically for this purpose. But where are they in this passage? They're actually at the villa of the high priest Caiaphas. It's the wrong location. It's also the wrong uh, timing. A trial can't take place at night. A trial can't take place during a festival. Uh, The timing is wrong for this trial. Also, uh, there's the wrong amount of priests. You see in verse 53 uh, that there are uh, chief priests in the plural. Well, technically, uh, there's only one priest. That's Caiaphas, but uh, his uh, father-in-law, Annas, is involved in seemingly exercising a kind of authority. There's a wrong amount of priests involved. And this one is perhaps a bit uh, shadier. There's uh, the wrong amount of members. Here we're speculating. Uh, The members of this particular court, the high Jewish court, uh, this is a court that's called the Sanhedrin. There's 71. There's a chief priest, and then there are elders and scribes. But it takes 23 of them uh, to judge a capital case. And uh, scholars go back and forth on this, but uh, presumably we'd be told that there are the right number uh, of uh, uh, lawyers in order to try the case, but we're not told that at all. So uh, this one is a bit speculative, but it seems like there's the wrong number of members. And this is very clear. Wrong amount of authority. This court, the Sanhedrin, they didn't have the power to execute someone. But look in verse 55. This is their very goal. From the very beginning, they are what? They're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. It's a trial that has, uh, well, really, it's ended before it even began. Uh, Earlier this week, we read, uh, not our week, in the week of uh, the life of Jesus in Mark 14, verse 1, we're told that they're already seeking to uh, kill uh, Jesus. And then you see at the very end of the passage in verse 64, they do uh, condemn him to death. But their goal is beyond their authority. They don't have the authority to do this. It's a wrong amount of authority. A wrong procedure. The witnesses who speak for the person on trial have to go first. And only after they speak can the witnesses who are against the person on trial begin to speak. The Mishnah says that those speaking for acquittal must precede those speaking for conviction. But it's reversed here, isn't it? We never hear testimony from those who were speaking for Jesus. It's the wrong procedure. And it's the wrong witness as well. You see that there are quite a few witnesses at this nighttime trial And it would seem that all of them are false witnesses. Verse 56 tells us that. Verse 57 tells us that. Verse 59 says that of all the testimonies that are being articulated, uh, that their testimonies don't actually agree. They don't match. And yet, the, the high priest in verse 60, what does he do? Still demands that Jesus make a response. All the testimony is false. The wrong witnesses in the mission of the Sanhedrin are actually supposed to warn all of the witnesses against rumor and against gossip and against hearsay and against bearing false witness. That's actually what's supposed to be warned at the beginning of a trial. It doesn't happen here. Here, the high priest is doing the very opposite, listening to rumor and hearsay. In fact, I think it's not 
it's not merely the wrong witnesses, it's the wrong witness. Who's the one who is judging these witnesses? It's the high priest. The high priest is actually serving as the a judge as well as a jury as well as all the witnesses. Uh, the high priest is actually serving as the only witness. And he declares the conviction. And then finally, it's the wrong duration. I don't know if this felt rushed to you, but any guilty verdict according to Jewish law had to be pronounced on the second day. Any guilty verdict pronounced on the second day. It's the wrong location, it's the wrong timing, it's the wrong amount of priests, it's the wrong amount of members, it's the wrong amount of authority. It's the wrong procedure, it's the wrong witness, and it's the wrong duration. And to all of this, Jesus, he's silent. He remained silent and made no answer, verse 61 says. For a trial like this, would that be your response? Would it be my response? I mean, Jesus, he, he knew the trial was a gross violation. He knew the trial was not what a trial should be. Jesus knew Scripture. Jesus knew the law. He knows that there's no justice here. And he's silent. I suppose it's a little bit personal, but I would like for you to imagine what you might do. Would you complain loudly? I mean, some of the negligence is quite uh, in your face. It's clear to everyone. Would you call out maybe one of the eight, two of the eight, three of the eight? Would you say something? Or would you protest so loudly that you say, look, you can kill me, but you're not killing me this way. I'm not going to go down like this. But would you and I, would we, would we fire up the social media? Let's get that machine moving just a bit. And you wait for the comments and the reposts and the retweets. You wait. Everyone's going to agree with me. Would you, would you shout out the window? That very night, you have proof that there's at least one guy with a sword. Someone's got a sword. You're going to shout out the window? The guy with the weapon. Can I have your attention, please? Would you shout out the window for anyone who might possibly be able to defend you? Make a testimony yourself. Uh, maybe there's a lingering disciple or two. What would you do? Why do you think that Jesus is silent? You know, maybe he's silent because he knows that death is just around the corner. I mean, how many times has Jesus already uh, said to his disciples uh, that he's going to die? I mean, uh, certainly three times he said explicitly uh, that he's going to die. But, you know, you look at the parable of the tenants in Mark chapter 12, and there's a, there's a death of a servant there. That's about Jesus. Uh, it may be that Jesus uh, numerous times said to the disciples uh, that he was going to be uh, killed. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus had already predicted publicly that people would spit on him, and that's, that's about to happen. Maybe he's silent because death is right around the corner. And maybe he's also silent because he's fulfilling Scripture. Last week, uh, remember, uh, we were told by Mark that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. And maybe that's simply what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Uh, there, uh, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and that as a sheep before shearers is silent, he'll not open up his mouth. And, and Jesus, he's fulfilling Scripture. So, silent because he knows he's going to die, silent because he's fulfilling Scripture. But maybe, maybe he's not really silent after all. 
you ever uh, had an experience where uh, someone has said a lot with silence? Where someone has said an awful lot with silence. By the way, married couples, you don't have to confess any conflict. But you know what that, what that looks like and what that feels like. The silence, it's noisy. And this, by the way, is especially the case of someone who's really powerful. When someone really powerful walks into the room and is given a brief, and they listen and walk away. This person has the power to start an international war, and they just walk. There's, there's noise in that silence, and I wonder if that's the case with Jesus Jesus is silent, and in that silence, he's showing that he knows how sin works. Jesus calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets. Jesus says to the religious leaders, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. God's people are often threatened with death. Those who are proclaiming God's word will stand before God's people and speak the words of God and very often say goodbye to their lives. Every hero in the Bible, it seems, is persecuted by the very people whom they're called to instruct, uh, Moses and Joseph and Samuel and David. Going all the way back to the death of King Solomon, uh, the people killed God's prophets almost as a regular habit. We don't know how all the prophets died in Scripture, but persecution from the people that they instructed was actually common. I mean, Jeremiah says that prophets were actually being killed in the sanctuary. There seemed to have been no shame to kill an emissary of God. After the exile, the Levites, they admit publicly that for centuries, Israel had cast God's law behind their back and killed God's prophets who were warning them to turn. Nehemiah chapter 9. And what does Paul say? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 that religious leaders killed not just Jesus, but they'd killed all the prophets before Jesus anyway. And when Stephen preaches the final sermon of his life, what does he say? He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen says they killed every prophet that announced the coming of the Messiah. And then Stephen was what? Murdered. I want you to think about this trial in light of the death of these prophets. If every prophet of God over a period of 1,500 years, said that they spoke the Word of God, and if all of the words that the prophets spoke were were put together, 1,500 years' worth of these words were all put together, and the testimony of those who are God's speakers lines up perfectly. If that happens, would you agree that they very likely spoke the Word of God? And if all of those prophets were killed, murdered, persecuted, what would that tell you about the ones who are doing the killing? I think it would tell you this. It would tell you that these murderers, the ones doing the killing, they're not really opposed to the prophets at all, are they? They're not. Who are they opposed to? They're opposed to the God of the prophets. 
You see, this trial actually vibrates with the trial in the Garden of Eden when God is found to be lacking. On second thought, God is found to be rather unpersuasive and unconvincing. And as Adam and Eve think further, this God is found to actually be untruthful. And so the fruit is eaten. I wonder if this silence of Jesus is really meant to be quite noisy. He's showing us that this first trial is really a trial about humankind's rejection of God. Any rejection of Jesus, it's a rejection of God. And a rejection of God is a powerful statement of what? A rejection of God is a powerful statement of limitless authority. I'm above God. I can judge God. A rejection of God is the very ascension of self onto your own throne. You actually become God. At least you do in your mind. A rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. And it's an assertion of boundless authority and an ascension to your own personal throne. This crime, this injustice, is the very crime and injustice that Jesus is about to pay the price for on the cross. The trial vibrates with the fall of mankind that began in the Garden of Eden. I want you to look, if you will, at the second half of verse 61. Real quickly, there is another trial in this passage, and I want you to see it. This is what I'm calling not the first trial, but the final trial. Jesus does speak at one point, doesn't he? In verse 61, the high priest says, Are you, it's emphatic in the Greek, almost as if he's pointing his finger at Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Isn't that a funny expression, Son of the blessed? The high priest is trying to avoid using the sacred name of God, but you know what he's saying. Are you, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, very God? This is actually a wonderful confessional statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ, Son of God. I mean, just Christian. Bounce that around your mind. Jesus Christ. Son of God, gorgeous confession of faith if you are a follower of Jesus. A centurion is going to make a very similar confession at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And look at Jesus' response in in 62. His response really is just two words, I am. He is. Christian, this is your Jesus. He is indeed the Messiah that is uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the very plan of God to redeem you. I am. And then you'll see another trial. The trial that happens at the end of the age. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, you see, he's turning their minds back to Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of God, the right hand of power. And that word for power is a word for God. He has all authority. Everything that can be said about God's authority can be said about Jesus' authority. But not just this. Here's the trial. Jesus is also saying something else. He's saying that it'll come again. He's saying that the high priest will actually see this. Isn't that amazing? 
No one escapes this trial. The high priest will see him, and not just with the authority of God, but with the judgment of God. Psalm 110 says that the enemies of God will become his footstool. The psalm goes on to tell us that Jesus will execute judgment upon every king, upon every nation, and he will shatter chiefs over the whole wide earth. Now look at Psalm 110. The word chiefs is actually in it. Jesus will judge. Daniel 7 is the same thing. tells us that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom forever um, and that that kingdom uh, will have victory as well as judgment. Daniel 7.22. This is another trial. The first trial shows us what the rejection of Jesus looks like. But this final trial shows us what judgment looks like. Nobody in this room escapes the final trial. He will come, and he will judge. You can doubt that your rejection of God is as serious as it seems to be in that first trial. You don't have to agree with that. I appeal to you to agree with that and follow Jesus. But you might not agree, but you will when Jesus comes again. You will then. And then finally, the familiar trial beginning in verse 66, and this is where we're going to conclude, and I think this, this actually is where uh, Mark wants us to conclude. You see what he wants us to notice? Right outside in the courtyard, you know, we're not told just once, we're told a couple of times. At the very beginning of the scene, did you catch that? Mark said, something's happening in the courtyard, and then he left that scene, and now he's come back. He wants us to notice that there's another trial going on out there, too. And this trial is meant to show the Christian in particular what the Christian life looks like and feels like. And just as the high priest looked at Jesus, what happens in the courtyard? It's a servant girl in verse 67 who looks at Peter. She says, you are with the Nazarene, Jesus. Verse 69, she looks at him again, but then she speaks to others, to the bystanders. This man's one of them. And then it's the bystanders themselves who look to Peter and they say in verse 70, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And what did Peter do each time? He denied Jesus. We know this story, don't we? He denies Jesus. And, and, and finally, in frustration, um, at the third time, he actually invokes a curse upon himself. And what he's doing is he's doing something that was recognized in the ancient world. He's um, adding a stamp to make a statement official. In the ancient world, just like today, I think, in a manner of speaking, a statement can be emphasized. We can uh, swear on our life that this is true. We can swear on the grave of a dead relative, which makes no sense at all. Our little kids do this too. It's a pinky pledge. Totally mean this. Totally mean it. means nothing. And it means everything, doesn't it? If it's a pinky pledge, it means something more than you would think otherwise. It means something. I'm not making light of this, but Peter really means it. And he makes that statement. He tells everyone in the courtyard in verse 71, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He couldn't be clearer. And when he does so, the rooster crows its final time. He said that he didn't know Jesus. And the rooster crows, and what's the rooster remind him of? Think about this. He said he didn't know Jesus, but what's the rooster remind him of? Jesus knows him. 
I often think that this passage is uh, used in a way that emphasizes the negative rather than the positive. There's no doubt this is not a great scene for a Christian. No Christian likes to feel this. But I do wonder if sometimes we emphasize the negative and totally miss uh, the positive. Jesus knows Peter. (laughs) He knows him, everything about him. He knew this would happen. And yet what is Jesus doing right at this very moment, enduring Enduring a trial that he didn't deserve, but Peter did. He knows Peter, and he knows what Peter needs. And I want us to be very clear about the end in verse 72. Peter, he broke down and wept. And he's weeping not because he's out of relationship with Jesus. Can you please hear me say that? He's not weeping because he's out of relationship with Jesus. He's weeping because he is in a relationship with Jesus and he knows that Jesus is the one who has to secure that relationship. He's in a relationship with Jesus and he is being reminded that he needs Jesus to be the strength of that relationship to make it last He needs to be the glue that holds it together. He needs to be the one who initiates everything that that relationship needs. And he needs to be the one to carry that that relationship on to its consummation into the new heavens and the new earth. Peter weeps not because he's out of relationship, but because he's in relationship. And he needs Jesus to keep it going. What would be the best result, you think, of that first trial? I mean, just think about this. We're speculating, but could you imagine if the entire Sanhedrin did what Peter did? Just imagine. If the entire Sanhedrin fell on their knees and they wept because they knew that Jesus was who he says he is. That's the desired result. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need Peter's tears. You need to fall on your knees and weep because he is who he says he is and there's no hope for you without him. Do you know that at the final trial there's not going to be time for this kind of weeping? I need to tell you that. At the final trial, in the middle of our passage, at that trial, when Jesus comes again to exercise the might and power and authority that he has, when Jesus comes to judge, you you know that that's too late, right? The time to cry is now. I want to conclude by reminding us that for the Christian, that final trial is just going to clear up everything. And there may be a few tears at that final trial coming from Christian eyes, but those are going to be the kind of weeping that is the weeping of joy. When we fail in this present age, brother and sister, the Holy Spirit shows us our failure And we weep, but we don't weep merely because we have failed. We weep because we know that our Savior had to die for us. We need his gospel. We need his gospel. We need his gospel. It's not just to convert. I need that gospel every day. Weeping, Christian, is your medicine. You're reminded of who you have. And at the final trial, Christian, when Jesus returns, your tears are not going to be tears for your failures, but they're going to be tears for joy. Because when Jesus comes again, all of your failure, all of your suffering, and all of your successes, 
They're going to be put into proper perspective. Here's the one who died for your sins. Jesus, he prevails not just to save, but to judge and to sanctify. Christian, this is your Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for the reintroduction to our Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross to save us. We thank you for your second coming where you will uh, judge uh, everyone. And we thank you for the constant provision of your sanctification that all those who are in you have. Thank you for sanctifying your church. In your name, amen.